Take a network break. Grab a virtual donut and join us for our weekly excursion across the landscape of IT news. We've got stories on Appstra, Cisco, Huawei, and much more. Our sponsor today is Viavi Solutions. They're a network performance management leader, enabling IT teams to understand user experience with a patent-pending end-user experience score. Viavi delivers outcomes, not just more data. And you can learn more at viavisolutions.com slash packetpushers. I'm also happy to welcome Illumio as a sponsor today. They are a leader in security segmentation. They prevent the spread of breaches and meet regulatory compliance requirements inside your data center and in your clouds. You can find out more at illumio.com. That's I-L-L-U-M-I-O, illumio.com. Last but not least, stay tuned after the news. We have a Tech Bytes conversation with sponsor Forward Networks about their network query engine. Forward creates a data model of your network that you can query to verify intent, speed troubleshooting, and check configuration changes. Greg, that was an interesting conversation. All the Tech Bytes are pretty good. We're finding that the vendors are really starting to get the hang of the idea of the Tech Byte and to bring good topics for discussion and give us something useful to talk about. And this one's really interesting because... Um, I've always been a fan of the formal verification that Forward Networks does. And now what they've realized is, of course, if you've got a database of everything in your network, why can't I just use it as a source of truth? But a network query engine. Uh, so that's great. It's a, And also an extension of the the popularity of the source of truth model that everybody seems to be chasing after. It's the big fashion this year, I think. It is, I think yes. that uh, this summer, everybody's going to be looking for a network source of truth and it's going to come in all the colors and it's going to look so great. Keep an eye out the summer for the, the, yes, the source of truth. All right, we got a lot of news, so let's dive in. Uh, first with Appstra. They make intent-based networking software for the data center. They announced version 3.2 of their Appstra OS their new features include the Intent Time Voyager, which lets engineers roll back your entire data center fabric state and switch configurations to a known good state with the push of a button. I don't know about you, but I was sitting there listening to this presentation going, broken, unbroken, broken, unbroken, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, I just sort of walked away and went, wow, I could break it and then unbreak it and then re-break it. I thought I could have a lot of fun with that. I could really torment some VMware people or some Windows people, which would be pretty good fun. I think it's a great idea, like in all seriousness, stepping forward. I think it's a great idea that Appstra is really moving forward here. What they've done is taken the key step of if you break something, you've got to be able to unbreak it. And yes. in certain pieces of networking kit, that is a not insubstantial task. Uh, Cisco's iOS, for example, or Juniper's Junos, do not just go like, oh, don't do what I just did. Don't, you know, roll it. It doesn't work that way. And in data centers, as they get more complex, it gets much harder. Like unpicking an eVPN configuration is not just a case of, I wish I hadn't have done that. It's often hundreds of steps and commands that have to be put in. So this ability to use software and an SDN platform is a, is a substantial step forward, in my opinion. Yeah, the rollback capability isn't necessarily new, but the ability to do it across all of the switches in your data center that are running under Appstra uh, yeah, at the push of a button makes that a, a significantly more interesting value proposition. And the other thing that they'll do is, as part of this intent-based loop, is then verify that the rollback happened and that your network is configured as hmm. you wanted it to be. So That's meantime to recovery. Yeah, meantime to recovery is the key here. How fast you can unbreak something is the, the key. I think the second part here is that it's multi-vendor. So if you have a mix of switches in your infrastructure, Appstra can lay over the top of them and take away that pain for you so you can do it uh, inside of the product. We've seen this that's, This sort of approach comes from other companies as well. Glueware does it. Itential does it, for example. So it's, it's not unique in that sense, but in the Appstra environment, because their controller is doing much more because of their graph-based approach, their graph-based modeling approach, very much more sophisticated. And also the data center interconnect feature. Yeah, that's another new feature. You can uh, essentially automate the interconnect using EVP and VXLAN to connect two data centers together, which is a nice feature. 
Yeah, which is n- not a whole new idea. The other people have done that in their SDN controllers. Uh, Cisco's ACI, for example, in the latest versions, people have been doing some of that with eVPN between data centers. And of course, you still have all the issues with underlay networking and what your underlay looks. But instead of using some sort of arcane OTV or you know based mm-hmm. on some arcane protocol, this is a much more na- natural and intuitive way to interconnect. So now they're able to orchestrate what is a key issue. We've seen data center interconnect become a huge market in its own right over the last three years and the financial analysts have all been saying how much money companies are going to make from data center interconnect, this ability to make two data centers look like one. And so for Abstra to get there is another step uh, down the path of them getting their product to a mature state. So we've got a link in the show notes if you want to read the press release and find out more. Uh, but we've also got more news to get to, so let's move on. Yeah, Sis- a lot of fi- just on that, a lot of financial news today. Where There's not a whole lot of announcements, not a whole lot of news. Um, but So I thought that uh, we would take this time because it is news season, and we did ask you a few months ago about whether you wanted to hear some financial news. So buckle up. It's a lot of that. But before they didn't... <laughs> Before then, we've got some Cisco product news. They served up several announcements from their live event in Barcelona, including a new integration between AppDynamics and Cisco Insight Workload Optimizer so that these two platforms can exchange and correlate data. There's also a Kubernetes-friendly Hyperflex converged offering, and Greg, you picked out a few uh, as well. Well, I think the interesting thing here is that Cisco is tying its applications to its hardware. So Cisco Insight Workload Optimizer is the tool that can distribute workloads across UCS infrastructure. And at hardware-defined virtualization is how I kind of think of it. It might be a little Mm -hmm. harsh. But certainly, you know, this idea that the container and the VM is one thing and Cisco's got a separate tool that can do that. And the Workload Optimizer sort of reaches into Kubernetes and VM and ESX to try and move them around so your workload sit balanced and does all the work for you. And AppDynamics, of course, is a analytics platform that sits over the top. So you can see your map and in and of itself, it burns a lot of CPU. You need a lot of money on that infrastructure. So Cisco tying those together is really saying, if you buy all of our things, we can actually make them work together so that you don't have to do the hard work to bring them together, which I think is is a feature-ish sort of thing. If you're into that, I buy one throat to choke, one hand to shake model. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're all in on Cisco, having their products work well together makes sense. And I think the value proposition they're trying to put together is your uh, a Application development team wants to see how the application is performing. Your infrastructure team wants to see how the underlying infrastructure is performing. Now we can help you exchange yeah. information and work together if an issue comes up. So yeah, it's, 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 it's nice, like the old yeah, mainframe. It's it's straight yeah. up mainframe model. It's like a, a total flashback <laughs> to the 1970s <laughs> when reinventing you bought world, yeah. you bought IBM software platform and their APIs and their analytics and their infrastructure and and it's a step in it's a step or a nod in that direction at the very least. So um, I think it's interesting and in that it's also integrated with the um, hyper converged infrastructure, the Hyperflex platform as well, which is interesting. But I think the things that grabbed my attention was Cisco was pushing very hard on its IoT products mm-hmm. and how those IoT products integrate with the Cisco family uh, and they were saying a lot about um, how they've got this IoT platform and now you can just write an app and you can put it onto a range of different things. So that was interesting because I think Cisco, you know, I've made the comment uh, on the show several times that Cisco is moving away from networking. That is, networking is not Cisco's growth market going forward. That's a static market. Service providers shrinking, enterprises are scaling down as they move loads to the cloud. So Cisco's moving into new markets and that's IoT. So if you're interested in that, I'm not. 
but I mention that because it's a, a nod in that sort of analysis that this is the, the changing world that we live in. But I was very interested to see them pushing on customer experience tools. And there was a wide range of things. There was two things I'll pick out. One is that Cisco's now selling Bluetooth headsets as though it's the uh, third coming of the of the wave of innovation of digital transformation, which was a little bit, uh, a little bit strange. Hmm. Did you see that? I Bizarre. did not see that. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, they're white which is definitely uncool. But anyway, they're very excited. Apparently, these Bluetooth habitats have Cisco magic in them, which I'm sure is great. And the other one was the WebEx Room USB. This is a small device that you basically plug into whatever you've got in your meeting rooms, um, basically, which is a, a television. <laughs> and you plug it in, and then it lets you plug your laptop in. So if you're not using... Uh, if you're connecting to a Zoom or a GoToMeeting, you can plug the USB into your laptop and then share that into a WebEx session. So quite often what happens is customers don't want to use WebEx for good reasons. It's pretty insecure. It's not very good. And the other ones are better. But internally, you might be forced to use WebEx and your customer forces, you know, the people you're speaking to force you to use Zoom. This allows you to sort of bring them together so that people inside the organization can, um, as I best I understand it, WebEx to it, but you're actually connecting to a GoToMeeting or a Zoom call, which I thought was interesting. interesting right huh wow okay yeah Yeah. that's (laughs) so okay some kind of translation layer between two different company services okay sure kind of weird right but it's not in the cloud it's it's at the device level which is kind but okay that's great so there's sort of an answer for that and i think it's sort of an admission that webex really isn't going to dominate that market there are other other companies out there doing who you know have the same ability to compete with webex and cisco's not winning per se or dominating that market but the other way I, I did have a chuckle. I'm, I'm going to diverge a little bit and get, get my snark hat out. Um, this, it goes on about something called a huddle space. Have you ever heard of a huddle space before? I've heard of cuddle puddles, but I think that's not where they're going with it. <laughs> no, I don't. Are we allowed to say that on, on our show? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, apparently a huddle space is a new idea where basically you put a desk on a piece of in the in the what I would call the staff room and you put a TV next to it and you turn it into a video conferencing point and then you can have meetings at it. That's pretty much what it is. So instead of building okay. meeting rooms for people to book, you just have an area in your open plan office where you set up a couple of televisions where two people can sit at a desk and share a video conferencing session with the people who are working remotely, basically. And it's called a huddle space. And you say it has movable walls? I see that in the notes here. Yeah, well, it's, if you sort of imagine a, you know, a round desk with two chairs and some soundproof walls around it so that when you're talking on the conference session. And I'm just sitting there looking at this going like, Really? You're going to get up from your desk, you're going to walk over to the huddle space, and you're going to set up a video conference with somebody who's working. What's wrong with sitting at your desk with a headset on? Is that not a telephone call? (laughs) I'm just baffled by the whole idea of – and Cisco calls this the customer experience division, and I'm kind of like going, "Eh, what are these – anyway, maybe I just – maybe I'm just too far away from the real world. I don't know. I I don't know if the – uh, American television show Get Smart made it over to the UK, but it, it was a spoof of uh, yeah, 60s yeah. spy mm-hmm. movies. And they had this thing called the Cones of Silence, which was mm-hmm. essentially two plastic cones that came over your head when you had to have a secure conversation. <laughs> For some reason, that's what comes to mind when yeah, you describe this. Just kind of strange. I mean, I don't know what what are these people are. Who's buying this stuff? I'm I'm baffled, right? <laughs> Everybody with a terrible open office, I guess. Yeah, it's like, why don't you just give people a USB headset and they can do it from the desk. I mean, if you're talking on a USB headset at your desk, that's that's called a telephone. Cisco never misses a trick. If there's an opportunity, they, they'll fill it. Yeah, I guess so. But anyway, I, I just thought that huddle space. Yeah, if you want to have, if you want to see what horrors open plan office <laughs> design has in hostel for you, look up a huddle space and be disappointed. <laughs> I promise you it was miserable. Yep. Uh, 
Uh, for just a little bit more on this, uh, to my mind, the most interesting announcement that's coming out is the Hyperflex application platform. This is the Hyperflex uh, hardware appliance, but it supports containers and 100% upstream native Kubernetes. The idea here is that your devs can use their cloud-native tools and principles for app development, while the infrastructure team gets the tools to handle the networking, the storage, the load balancing, and a service mesh. You can also manage multiple Hyperflex appliances via Cisco Insight through the cloud. To me, this is interesting because I think this is sort of an answer, not quite to VMware's Project Pacific, where they're trying to integrate uh, containers into the enterprise. And this seems like Cisco taking a stab in that direction as well. Well, it wouldn't be a conference these days without an offering to the Church of Kubernology. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> has to have some Kubernetes in it. It's a bit. It still reminds me of OpenStack back in the day. You know, it wouldn't be a conference if we didn't have some sort of OpenStack announcement. So let's get a half a dozen of them in there. No, I think it's interesting that uh, Cisco is still committing resources to Kubernetes. It's becoming clear that Kubernetes is not the be all and end all. At the end of the day, seventy percent of you know, whatever you're doing in your data center is going to be VM. And even 70% of what's being done in the cloud is still VMs. And the Kubernetes road is long and paved with bumps and probably dirt and dust and, you know, whatever. So I, I would, you know, if I if you're looking at Kubernetes, I would be slow to rush into this. I think there's no guarantee that Kubernetes will win. And quite often people are deploying Kubernetes inside of containers. And certainly VMware's Project Pacific has done exactly that, has basically co-opted Kubernetes and said, just stick it in a VM and it'll be fine. Yeah. And it, it, when you end up with that choice, you end up just running a VM because it's easier than having a container. You've really got to have a very specific use case to make containers work, I think. I think there's definitely room to debate Kubernetes. And as a, as a side promotion, that's happening over on the Day 2 Cloud podcast quite frequently. So go check that out uh, with Ned Bellavance and Ethan Banks. But I also think Cisco needs to have a Kubernetes story. They need to be in the conversation. And this allows them to do that while also selling you a Hyperflex HCI box. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well done. Uh, that's it. And if that's the brand of HCI you want, yay, that's great. It's good, you know, keeping up. Speaking of VMware, uh, they recently laid off hundreds of employees as part of a, quote, regular workforce rebalancing. That's according to a spokesperson cited in the reporting by the register. And we know tech layoffs are typical, but this time around, it seemed like uh, it was more prominent in my social feed. I saw a flood of tweets with folks affected by the cut. Unexpected side effect of social media, right? Yeah. Like in the old days, you got fired and you just disappeared. And yeah. nobody knew that you'd been executed and nobody knew what and where. But there was a flood of posts from very high profile, you know, brand ambassadors or evangelists or whatever, you know, lot theaters or whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, and VMware's been very big about encouraging its staff to get out there on social media and promote the company and, you know, sing the praises of your salary owner, you know. And of course, as soon as the salary owner lets them go, they're out there saying, has anybody got a job? I've been let go from VMware. Yeah. And it's pretty grim. PR really it looks pretty bad that VMware's in like if you're not aware of what's actually happening it really looks like VMware's in trouble because my social media is just flooded with people saying I got fired from VMware can I get a job somewhere and it's like uh what yeah that it seems like that's got to be something that these corporations now have to take into account is the the PR and branding potential hit uh, of these layoffs because folks are going to turn to their social contacts and say Got, got can looking for work. Uh, please yep. retweet. And so <laughs> these messages are getting are continually amplified.
Yeah, and other people are actually amplifying them and, you know, there's other people popping up saying, if you got made redundant from VMware, come and apply to me. I'm looking for headcount, which That's is, right. I mean, good for the people, but uh, yeah. it's pretty brutal piece of uh, PR and branding exercise for VMware because, uh, anyway, the I, it must be said that VMware does, uh, does give out some very lovely get lost gifts uh, as you head out the door. So it's not a case of get out, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. They do get mm. a few months of salary and a range of other benefits so you don't walk out the door angry at VMware for getting shafted, although there's a few people in my feed about that. And as best as I can um, see and was chatting with a bunch of other people, most of the headcount appears to be in the sales engine around the vSAN product. So mm. some wild speculation would be that the vSAN product is now mature. The push to shove the product down customers' throats is kind of done. Customers have decided that this uh, – that this, this turd tastes really good and they like it. They don't need people shoving it down their throats anymore. So now it's time to cut costs, let that product sell through, take the profits, and then take the money that they were using to build the vSAN market and move it into something else. If you can spell Kubernetes, you'd probably work out what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to get into the church of Kubernology. You have to be a part of the church to be a believer, you know. Amen. Mm. So I think ultimately the point here is if there's a lesson to be made, and it's one that I make often on many of the shows, uh, where we talk about professional development is it's a reminder that big companies are not safe places to work. Many of these people were top achievers, on target, receiving bonuses for their work, but their whole division just got fired, got axed, and they got moved out the door. Nobody cares about them. Uh, especially important that if you're someone who's come from a family where you're told that big companies are safe places to work and they'll look after you, that's not true. You have to take responsibility and plan for these events. I did uh, publish a post in this week's Human Infrastructure magazine with some more detailed advice and uh, sort of digging into the area. Um, if you work for a big company, in all honesty, you're just as likely to be fired as anywhere else for no reason of your own. Obviously, you'll get fired if you've got your own reasons. Like if you do a bad job or if you do things wrong or you're not up to snuff, you will get fired. But quite often you can get fired for no apparent reason and no fault of your own. For a workforce rebalancing, yes. Yeah. Or as they call it internally, a RIF, reduction in force. Yes, I had to stop and look at that because all these posts were coming through saying, I just got riffed by VMware. And I'm like, wait, what is the, what is a riff? And so, yeah, reduction in force. Thanks to <laughs> McKinsey and Accenture. speak. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's Accenture and, you know, uh, literally McKinsey language. You're not firing people, you're reducing, in, you're reducing the workforce. So a reduction right. in force is not, you're not firing people. No, 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 no. You're taking care of business and right. business doesn't care about you. <laughs> uh, I do want to say this, I think, also underscores the importance of social media and community because the response I saw from folks just offering, you know, sort of mental support or saying, hey, you know, amplifying this is a good person, you'd be lucky to snap them up, that kind of stuff. Social media can be a really powerful tool for your career if you use it wisely. So if you're not involved in the social community, this is uh, maybe a data point that you might want to consider. Yeah. Having a blog, having a Twitter account is an investment. And right now, these people are out there tweeting and being amplified to thirty or 40,000 people by their colleagues. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that gets your resume in front of a lot of people. You're going to short-circuit the unemployment time. But it's also yeah. a chance to, you know, anyway, read the read the post in Human Infrastructure magazine from this week. Find a link there at packetpushes.net slash newsletter. And you can actually see this down the bottom of the subscribe page just underneath. You can see all the back issues of him. So right. check that out. Yeah, I can go find it. 
All right, a quick break to tell you about one of our sponsors, Viavi Solutions. They're a network performance management leader. They help IT teams understand user experience. They do this with a patent pending end user experience score. They analyze hundreds of performance metrics with Viavi Observer to distill this information into a single, easy to understand score that represents what actual end users are experiencing. This quick insight breaks down issue domains with simple explanations and high fidelity wire data forensics to speed problem resolution. Viavi helps your network teams manage daily operations, mitigate performance and security risks, and solve issues fast. Viavi, delivering outcomes, not just more data. You can learn more at viavisolutions.com slash packetpusher. Yeah, Viavi, one of the things I want to point out here, Viavi Solutions doesn't make a big deal out of it in this ad spot, but they actually have a wide range of testing and performance tools. It's not just, but here today we're talking about their, uh, their part of their business unit that does this. So check it out. Uh, viavisolutions.com slash packetpushers. Back to the news. The government of the United Kingdom has issued a final decision on whether or not to allow Huawei Gear and its telco networks. The decision bans Huawei Gear from, quote, sensitive core networks, but will allow telcos to use Huawei equipment elsewhere. So lots of mainstream press coverage about this week about the U.S. government, you know, bloviating extensively about how they're going to, you know, be be unpleasant if the U.K. doesn't do what the U.S. tells them to do. And the simple fact is that Huawei is already in the U.K. network. It's been there for over a decade. And right. pulling out that equipment is going to cost billions. And the quite honestly, no one's going to do that. So unless the U.S. government wants to pay to rebuild the U.K. network infrastructure – you know, the chances of the UK government going, oh, yeah, no, we'll, yeah, we'll just do whatever you say, uh, US government. That's, you know, that's sort of a dead end debate. And, yep. um, the, and the flip side of this is, of course, that there's no extra money in 5G. The real secret here is that 5G is about reducing the cost of operation for network owners. 4G networks are really built on a legacy model of, you know, hardware devices run one piece of software with one operating system. They haven't even got to virtual machines yet, you know. So mm. 5G is a step forward into terms of reducing the cost of operation. That is the primary benefit of 5G. You're going to get some nice side benefits with increased speed and greater device density, and the higher speed will get you some lower latency. They're going to throw in some other bits and pieces, you know, put some gravy on top of the chips, if you like, whatever, you right. you know, on yeah. the side. But those would have happened in 4G anyway. Most of them, if you look under the hood, were actually standard slated to go into 4G, and that's where 4.5G comes in because a lot of the 5G stuff advances were actually just folded back into 4G because it was taking mm. so long. So... Really, 5G is about making the telcos more cost-effective and they can service more customers for less money. That's really all 5G is. You can forget the rest of the hype and the thought leadership and the rubbish around 5G. That's all it is, right? So the outcome of this is that while we won't get to offer OSS and BSS systems, in telco speak, OSS is the operational support system and BSS is the business support. So while we won't be doing the invoicing and the asset management and they won't be doing the operational support and they will be restricted to 35% of the value of the network. Uh, it also sounds like, you know, there, there won't be Huawei routers in the, in the core networks of these telco companies. Yeah, now that's not clear to me because um, Huawei has got very good DWDM and IP routing equipment. Mm-hmm. And if 35% of value of the network is uh, ha- can only be Huawei, you go, I would just like to point out that 60% of any network is in headcount and accounting. So if you're a telco, you spend 60% of your money in accounting and billing and, you know, operational and headcount getting it installed. So 35% of Huawei doesn't actually preclude Huawei DWDM or Huawei routers. Mm-hmm. It might, but, you know, or maybe there's a there's a move away from Huawei in the networking space. Because at the end of the day, those those pieces of kit, you know, especially a DWDM doesn't actually see the data. It's not like it gets visibility into the data. So, uh, 
I think the net effect will be, as you say, Drew, that they, while we will be operating the RAN networks at the edge, um, yes. there are contracts already signed. Most of the suppliers have already picked Huawei and started rolling that network out and before this even became an issue. And you're right, whether the Huawei, DWDM and ICARE IP gear for the backhaul would be restricted, which might give a boost to Sienna and Cisco and Juniper for the for the optical components and the IP components, yes. which yeah. might be the business win that uh, the US government is looking for, because now they can go back to those companies and say, look what we did for you, potentially. <laughs> which that, is That the, could be a play, yes. Yeah, and the current US government does seem to work on a political quid pro quo. You do something for me, I do something for you. And uh, at the end of the day, we still don't know why the US is so opposed to Huawei. Um, they haven't released any reasoning or publicly stated what exactly the problem is. But my favourite story out of all the ones on offer is that Huawei doesn't offer backdoors to the US government and it's kind of pissed off about that. <laughs> I have to say that makes my tinfoil hat rattle a little bit. So, yeah. Uh... <laughs> well, you know, the logical extension is Cisco and Juniper have got backdoors there and the U and the NSA can get into all of those. And uh, they're not happy about it in the, you know, they want to keep an eye on five guys, you know, on the on their allies. Yep. Keep keep your friends close and your enemies closer. But, of course, while we won't give them backdoors because it's a Chinese government thing, so they don't want to see what <laughs> – that's just me being a conspiracy theorist. I'm really bad at it, obviously. <laughs> The problem is it's there's a, an element of plausibility to it, so it's yeah hard to discount. It's more likely to be a combination of lots of factors, so it's probably I think yeah I think so. So all right, so we've got links to the uh, bunch of links if you want to read up more on uh, the UK and Huawei and the US trying to strong arm the UK, which was ineffective uh, in our show notes. Let's move on. Uh, Greg, you wanted to bring up Ubiquity Networks. We haven't really talked about them much before, but they had, a, I guess, a recent uh, some financial updates, and you also just wanted to sort of talk about them a little bit. Yeah, well, Ubiquity Networks is not something we've spoken about on the network break or even packet pushes generally, and I keep seeing them come up in our Slack forum. If you ever want to be a part of the packet pushes Slack, it's for customers only or users only. We don't generally allow vendors in, but if you want to get in, send us an email to packetpushes at gmail.com, tell us your name, and send us your LinkedIn page so we can do some sort of a very high-profile vetting of who you are. <laughs> Deep background vetting, just checking out. That would be helpful if you could do that. We know you're not a vendor. Uh, it's customers only. You're free to ask questions and people can help you and you can help other people. Send us an email. Uh, but a lot of people in there are talking about Ubiquity and it's kind of something. So I looked them up today and I found out that they've got a market capitalization of $10 billion. Now, wow. right, now think about that. Extreme Networks has a market capitalization of $750 million. Juniper has a market capitalization of $7.6 billion. So Ubiquity is bigger than Juniper and 10 times larger than Extreme Networks. Um, most of what they do is consumer and service provider wireless, which is a big market. But And in 2019, their shares were up 90%. And it struck me, why are we not talking about them some more? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I mean... I Mostly I thought they were a consumer play, which wouldn't really get them on uh, the network break radar. But Increasingly, that's not true. So if you actually go to their website and you start checking it out, they've got some pretty hot-to-trot wireless gear that uh, I think a lot of people would be interested in from, a, you know, obviously a Wi-Fi 6 network for your home, Amplify Alien is one thing, and cameras and stuff, but they do actually have quite a bit of um, uh, enterprise Wi-Fi stuff and enterprise switching, very popular in uh, homes for nerds, nerds who want PoE switches and low-cost stuff. Um, very Meraki-like, I guess, would be mm -hmm. the way to talk about it. A lot of people talk about Meraki to me, this sort of hosted, managed thing. I just wanted to point this out so that, you know, Ubiquity being a 10 billion 
billion dollar company makes them a very substantial organization in the networking space, even though we haven't talked about it. However, the CEO of the company owns a substantial chunk of stock and tends to run Ubiquity like it's his own personal fiefdom. And it's not really a company which is open. It's sort of like a one-man band, but it's a $10 billion company. We know what those sorts of people are like. And there's been a lot of speculation and lawsuits going that their financials aren't necessarily perfect. Mm-hmm. And the CEO also likes to pretend that normal business rules don't apply to his company. Right. There's a tension there. <laughs> yeah, there's a tension there. There's no, there's an awful lot. There's some smoke, but we haven't seen any fire. And the share, but you know, share price ran up 90% in 2019. It literally flew from a hundred and wow, from $90 to $170 at one point. It's fallen back a bit to 150 now. So that really makes it a thing. So I'm going to be taking a closer look at them. We'll put some more financial news in over time. There is a bit of an issue going on at the moment. Apparently, ubiquity devices are all phoning home and extracting data and sending it away. And some people have some problems, but uh, the people in the Slack channel have found a, a way that you can disable that in software, apparently, and they're going to be doing some testing. So if you want to track that, get into the Slack channel. So Ubiquity, uh, something that we'll actually probably start tracking more in the network break going forward. Yeah, and if you've got insights, hit us up, uh, packetpushers.net slash FU uh, for a follow-up. Uh, if you've used them, like them, don't like them, whatever, let us know. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Uh, it's the financial news time. F5 Networks released their Q1 2020 financial results. The company had revenues of $569 million, up 5% year over year. Net income was $98.5 million. And F5 is clearly signaling to investors that the big days of hardware sales are over. Yeah, the juice you get from selling the big hardware box and booking all the revenue up front is uh, run out of, of road. And shares are now down 5% because it's clear that F5 can't sustain the current model. Uh, they did say in the uh, discussion with analysts that services revenue grew a lot. But the point here is that markets don't like selling people for money right now. The professional services craze was 10 years ago when IBM was doing outsourcing, <laughs> and that's uh, that's all over. What we know now is that selling bodies for money is not a scalable business model, and the markets want to see products and software at 65% plus gross margins, and that's not serve- professional services business. So I think they got marked down partly for that. Uh, systems revenue or hardware sales was down 11% as customers forsaking for physical devices. That's Forsake is my word but they said something else in the report. <laughs> um, the other side about F5's business model is that their gross margin is 85%. Wow. And this, I mean, 85% gross margin. So literally the cost of manufacturing their products is one is less than one-fifth of what they sell them for. So uh, mm. you've got an awful lot of money there to shove, shove a product down a customer's throat, have like yeah. really highly paid sales reps and things like that. Um, it has to be said that there's no – it's hard to imagine that F5 can increase the upside from that that gross margin. Like they couldn't right. get it to 90%. So there's no upside there from a financial point of view. Um, and in the call, F5's execs were really trying hard to convince analysts that selling software versions of their products in the cloud is a winning strategy. Color me a little dubious. There's an awful lot of competition for application load balances and load balances and application delivery stuff. Even if they bought Nginx and they also closed the Shape Security acquisition this month, um, that's that's a hard sell, I think. It is, although I will say I think it was smarter than to get Nginx. They can, well, I guess you were talking about bad-mouthing services, but even if a company is using Nginx uh, F5, at least gets a piece of a potential service play there, uh, a la the Red Hat model. Um, but yeah, a lot of software competitors. I'm thinking Avi Networks, which VMware recently acquired, um, but not to mention others. So yeah, it's a, it, they're in a tough business. Yeah, and everybody else has got one, right? There's 
It's not like in the days of F5 when there was only a handful of load balancing companies and the days of there can only be one winner in every market. There was F5 and A10 and, you know, all the others sort of fell away over the time. Whereas in this new market, F5 is not a winner here. The cloud companies can build their own with service mesh. There's load balancers built into Kubernetes. There's load balancers built into service meshes. There's load balancers, you know, in default Nginx that most people can just configure their own, you know, open source Nginx instance and have a pretty effective load balancer straight up. I think F5 is going to have a difficult and expensive road forward to convince people to switch to its products in an open source world. All right, we've got some more financial news coming up, but first a break to tell you about our other sponsor today, Illumio. Organizations use Illumio to stop lateral movement everywhere. With Illumio, you get a single platform for visibility and control across any data center and the cloud. Illumio stops lateral movements using its Adaptive Security Platform, or ASP. With ASP, you can see how your applications communicate, get insights into vulnerability exposures, and then take control. Illumio helps you create security segmentation polys that work on bare metal, virtual machines, and containers. You can seamlessly protect workloads wherever they go, however your business grows. You can achieve regulatory compliance, securely migrate applications to the cloud, and overcome data center and cloud security challenges. Find out more at illumio.com. That's illumio.com. All right, some more financial news. Juniper Networks reported Q4 and full year results. For Q4, revenues were $1.2 billion, which is up 2% year over year and a net income of $168 million. For the full year, Juniper had revenues of $4.4 billion, which is down 4% year over year and a net income of $345 million. So reading the transcript with analysts, uh, it's clear that uh, Juniper is taking on board the model that car enterprises are not very good at buying products. They need to be sold them and have them shoved down their throat. So they're ramping up sales efforts to sell the products that help. Uh, mm -hmm. The quote from Rami Rahim was, our population of quota-carrying sales reps is up by approximately 20% from the trough levels we experienced during Q1 of 2019, huh. which uh, which is interesting. So uh, they are sc scaling up their sales force. So uh, we've seen a widespread message is that enterprise are not very good buyers, and so what you do is hire salespeople to turn them <coughs> into buyers. Yep. And that means you have to pay for salespeople, which is great. Well done, enterprise IT. You've just added a whole lot more cost to your business models. But there you go. Can't be helped. Uh, expenses are up. Revenue is down a bit year over year, but up over the last quarter. Uh, I thought there was a disappointment in the security. It was up only slightly. And given the demand for security, that's got to be disappointing that they haven't been able to grow like some of the other security companies like Palo Alto and so forth. And of course, we know that Palo Alto has a very strong sales effort and 85% of their revenue is spent on sales and marketing. So uh, maybe they're sort of looking at that and going, well, we'll have to start doing some of that to keep up with what the other people are doing. So my sort of take on the whole thing was business as usual. Juniper's winding back service provider efforts for 2020 because it's clear that the service providers aren't spending big this year. They're expecting something to, to kick off in 2021 when 400 gig transition starts in the backhaul and inside their internal networks and 5G starts to pick up momentum. I would think maybe even till the end of 2021 is a good, better thing. So yeah, if you if you look at their annual revenues side by side, 2018 versus 2019, uh, for 2019, clouds flat, service provider is down, and enterprise is up, but only a fraction, like 27 million dollars year over year, which is not a lot of money. Hard to say that's really even up. So no, no, but I think it's the transition here is to hire more sales reps and sell to enterprises because they don't buy very well. They nearly right. used to have people shoving it down their throats. It's a bit like Coca Cola, right? 
it's not unique to Juniper. F5 is doing the same thing, um, you know, so on and so forth. And just one closing note was uh, there was a discussion on tariffs. The question was asked uh, and Rami was saying, so with respect to tariffs, I would say that we've been predicting tariffs would impact our business by 30 to 50 basis points. That's a half a percent. And that's largely played out as we expected. I would remind you that it's a total gross margin impact and so on and so forth. And they're saying that they'll get it under control in the next quarter or two when they shift their buying uh, their supply chain to get around the tariff thing. But the impacts of the tariff that the US government has put in place are damaging some of the technology companies. And Juniper just happens to be what the one that was asked the question this week. So I thought I'd mention it. Uh, I think Juniper has a, a good opportunity with MIST, their MIST acquisition, as we're going to see Wi-Fi 6 start to ramp up. That gives them a potential toehold. I, I still feel like they're missing the boat on SD-WAN, uh, particularly if they're refocusing on the enterprise. I know they have mm. Contrail, and I know it's an SD-WAN solution, but it, I just don't see it getting a lot of traction. They don't seem to be marking it in a way that I understand. Um, exactly, yeah. Mm. They're not marking it as an SD-WAN. They're, mark, they're just saying we have an SD-WAN, but we really want to talk to you about the analytics or the SD, you know, so it's like, okay, uh, that's yeah. strange, yep. Right, a lot of their competitors have a much simpler, more compelling story. Well, you just need a, you need a story that says we've got an SD WAN, and it's as good <laughs> as everybody else's. That's a you know that that right, right there is yeah. All right. Well, there's our free advice to Juniper, and they can take it or leave it as they will. Yeah. Moving on, continuing financial updates. Extreme reported Q2 2020 results. Revenues are up six percent year over year at two hundred and sixty seven point five million, and the company had a net income loss of twenty three point five million. So good and bad news. Um, Extreme continues to make a small loss, and I mean a small loss. It's not substantial in the overall scheme of things. They were cash flow positive six months ago, but they've gone down. I think overall, Extreme is holding steady. It's not growing. It's not. In trouble well except that not growing is in trouble in this current marketplace yeah the challenge for extreme was that the revenue of 267.5 was short of their guide and they while they grew six percent year over year as a result of the aerohive acquisition it wasn't because extreme was growing in its own right and again they were talking about a sales restructuring they're gonna they've um kicked a few of the head salespeople out and they're hiring new people and they're also expanding their sales team uh, get used to being door knocked by extreme sales reps if you're uh, the sort of target extreme customer. Yeah, they also did a share buyback, I think, to uh, maybe uh, mollify shareholders a little bit and also keep the stock price from dipping too far. Yeah, that would be the normal sort of you know financial engineering that we see from US companies on the stock market is if you're in trouble, buy back some shares and that'll support your share price while you wait to find the turnaround. All right, our final story today, IBM is going to get a new CEO. Ginny Romady announced that she will step aside in April of 2020. Her successor is Arvind Krishna. Unexpected. This is normally something that's telegraphed a year in advance. They name a successor and so forth and so on. Not this time. Uh, Ginny has just decided to step down. Um, Arvind Krishna apparently was the architect of the Red Hat acquisition. So mm -hmm. you can basically imagine that uh, IBM is going to have Red Hat shoved up its clacker to turn to change from the inside out. This is not. Um, this is very much Red Hat's going to take over IBM. Would be the reading if you read tea leaves in this sort of thing, because the former Red Hat CEO Jim Whitehurst will become the president. Yeah, which sort of tells you that IBM looks at sees its its key to the it's future is. Yes, IBM salvation is Red Hat, yes. Yes, and the financial numbers we talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, the 24% 20, increase in Red Hat revenues sort of indicated that that is the thing. A couple of things that I thought was um, going on, 
Uh, IBM, of course, is much smaller now than when Remedi took the helm. It ended the year with a market capitalization of $200 billion and a revenue of $100 billion. So it's only a you know, hundred billion in revenue, but your market capitalization is only two hundred. It's too tight, two X. That's pretty grim. And sales are down more than twenty quarter since twenty twelve. So not exactly a winning hand, but she's probably done the best she can with what she's got. And she, I also note that she was actually only ever worked for IBM her entire life. Huh. Uh, that is pretty unusual. And generally, I would regard anybody who works for the same company for more than five years as to be mentally defective because you'd just be so stuck in your mindset by whatever that company does that you actually are not very valuable. Even if you change jobs, right, you become a, you know, I'm an IBM or, or I'm a, you know, that cultural thing that we used to see was, a, you know, I'm here for life sort of thing. And that's not a feature anymore. That's a bug. But it's interesting to see that she's much done that. So so she retires with the IBM jersey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right out of right out of, co- out of university or college or whatever they call it, uh-huh. all the way through till today. And so she's going to be retiring. I don't know what IBM's future is going to look like. I mean, at, at five years ago, IBM was an anything shop. They would do anything that the customer would pay for. It wasn't a question of, do you? The answer was always yes. It's just a question of how much you want to pay. But I think in the era going forward, modern tech companies choose what they don't do as much as what they do do. Mm-hmm. So AWS does that but it doesn't try and do things that it doesn't do and and that transition from being an anything shop to being an opinionated this is what we do but we don't do that you have to go and find someone else to supply that or we have partnerships for that that's a massive transition that IBM has to go through because in the old days IBM was the gatekeeper it owned you know they invoiced the customer and all their suppliers came through them that's not the way things are going forward I mean, we've seen them sort of start down that road. They shed a networking business. They shed Lenovo to get out of the the PC and server business. So, yeah, trying to make some decisions about what they should be and not be. Um, I also think it's got to be probably frustrating for IBM folks to be like, it's a $100 billion company. Stop talking like we're dead. (laughs) (laughs) But but also they're not growing and they're sort of... Oh, they've got a lot of... You know, they've got the old mainframe business, which is hugely profitable, I'm sure. Absolutely. But it's not a growth market, you know, and they've got all that outsourcing business, which same thing, not a growing market. And it's also massive. Like if you're sitting on a 10-year contract, that pricing is locked in. Ten years ago, that's perfect. Ten years of revenue, luscious. Yep. All of a sudden, now it's like that's a that's a boat anchor holding you back from getting into the high growth cloud market. Mm-hmm. So sort of, you know, mm-hmm. so it is a you know, lots of how quickly the market's changed without changing anything, of course, because IBM's still the same company as always. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that wraps up our news coverage for today. Hang out for our Tech Bytes conversation with Forward Networks and the Network Query Engine. It builds a real-time model of your network so you can query for intent, troubleshooting, and more. That's starting right now. Welcome to Tech Bytes, a 15-minute podcast that examines compelling technologies and products. Today, we're discussing the Network Query Engine from sponsor Forward Networks. Forward creates a data model of your network that you can query to verify intent, speed, troubleshooting, and check configuration changes. Our guest is Andy Volmi. He is a member of the technical staff at Forward. Andy, welcome to the podcast. And can you give us the elevator pitch on Forward Networks and the Network Query Engine, or NQE? Sure. Yeah. So Forward Networks is a verification platform. It verifies end-to-end network behavior. And uh, we can verify large enterprise network designs to ensure that they conform with all the stated connectivity, security, and compliance policies, and accelerate troubleshooting and updates or change windows. And there are a number of ways that um, of verifying properties in the forward platform. And today, we'll drill into Network Query Engine, or NQE for short, 
which is a fairly new addition to the forward platform, NQE enables you to query your network like a database. In particular, it lets you write custom verification checks as queries in hours instead of months that you would previously have to do to, to write them. And um, they can get checked on every new snapshot with detailed diagnosis whenever the checks are violated. All right, so there's a lot there, but let's step back. Can you just describe briefly how Forward builds a data model of the network, what that data model encompasses, and, and how you're getting information from network devices to build that model? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so I'll paint the broader picture of how this all fits into for, uh, into the Forward platform. So, um, as as you might know from previous conversations with folks at Forward, so Forward Networks is this verification platform, and it builds this detailed, behaviorally accurate model of a network. And it does this by going out and collecting configuration and state data from um, network devices. And state data is things like you know, ARP and MAC and routing tables mm. from network devices. So not actual traffic, but just, just the state of the devices. And then it combines those things with um, mathematical models that we've built into our platform of every single device's behavior. And through that, we're able to predict exactly how any hypothetical packet would be forwarded in your network. Okay, so it's essentially like a virtual living copy of your network. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, that's right. I think the term that we often use is the digital twin. So you have this copy of your network and you can you know, see how packets are flowing through it. Um, you can interrogate it in a variety of interesting ways. And one of the ways that's, that's really amazing and unique about this is that you can, with this visibility, you can start to verify end-to-end -end intent, right? So forwarding behavior of your network. So you can go in and say, um, you know, I would like to verify that, you know, A and B are reachable or mm -hmm. A and B are completely isolated. Mm -hmm. Or they're uh, not reachable. Right. Or which might be actually your intent. You might actually want to block them, A, from talking to B or something like that. I think we've talked about this plenty of times. Forward Networks is the, one of the network modeling and, and formal verification products. By pulling all the state into your software, you can actually then test the connectivity between them all. Now, this isn't this is done using math. This isn't just using like magic or testing. This is actually done using solid math. Yeah, that's right. And I think there was a previous uh, talk that we went into all the details about that mathematical model. But you can think about it like, yeah, there's like a set of equations, and uh, that models the the network behavior, and you know they have variables for like the state. Uh, that's coming in, and then we can do lots of things with those equations, and mm. um, in particular predict like end-to-end behavior, so that you get a kind of an ability to do kind of like integration tests for your network, where mm. uh, you know at the end of the day you're running your network to um, for certain applications, like you're building yeah. it for a reason to to support certain traffic, and so you can verify that you're actually supporting your applications in the way that you think you should be. Or now, one of the interesting things about this is because you continuously read the state from the network, not just the configuration, but the state, a range of different, you know, memory tables and route tables and all that sort of stuff. You can actually keep retesting the model so that you know exactly what's happening. Yeah, that's right. So, so it's like it's uh, what's really nice about this is that it's continuous. Um, so every time you get a snapshot, well, we call it we call it a snapshot. Basically, it's yeah. when the forward platform um, reaches out and gets state and configuration from all these devices. Every single time we get an update, um, we'll check all the properties again. We we'll build the mathematical mm -hmm. model. We check all the properties, and so you can see exactly when something failed and pin down and do a diff and find out exactly what happened. Um, and what caused your your outage or the change? So now we're here to talk about 
we've got the model, we know how the model works, so we can map paths through the network, or we can verify that something's been blocked from, you know, you actually might not want A to talk to B, and you want to make sure that that doesn't change. Just because someone didn't configure the firewall, you suddenly do not want to see A talking to B because a firewall rule accidentally left it through. That's the concept behind forward networks and your products. You're talking about network query engine. What's the advantage of the network query engine, and why is that the major feature that you announced late last year? Well, yeah. So, so again, we've we've been talking about this um, this end to end intent checks. But one of the things that we learned from talking to customers and working with them was that that's that's really they're really excited about those end end to end intent checks. But they also have a bunch of other sort of non behavioral properties that were even more top of mind often. For example, you know, to give you a couple examples, you might an operator might want to know that you know MTUs are set consistently throughout the okay. network, or that VLANs there are no VLANs missing where they you know uh, where they should be, and so these aren't really properties about traffic end-to-end traffic policy, but of course they obviously they could affect network behavior in really you know, huge ways. Yeah. yeah, but they're more like these component level or like layer level checks where you're you they want to verify that that each of the components that they have in the network that, that are part of their network design, that they're operating as they intend to. And so like an MTU consistency check is something that regardless of whatever the end-to-end intent is, you want those to be consistent, right? Um, or typically. Yeah. And so that kind of check was actually um, very top of mind for a lot of our customers. And another way to look at it is to say, well, sometimes our operators don't know exactly what the right end-to-end intent is, but you do definitely know when certain things are wrong, right? <laughs> okay. And so, um, so, so that's what people wanted to verify. And um, you know, you can just imagine. Suppose you're, you know, you're a network engineer, junior network engineer, and you're given this task. Hey, we've got you know, ten thousand devices, hundred different, you know, vendor OS version combinations. Please go out and verify that all our MTUs are set consistently. All right, right. and if you know, if we have any inconsistencies, please tell me. Please give me a report. Like, how would you do this? You know, would you well, log normally into I'd bring up the vendor device? and ask them to do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> so is the idea then that for Network Query Engine that you're helping the customer ask the right questions and ask them in the right way? Yeah, so so what we're doing with Network Query Engine is um, we're like um, jumping ahead a little bit is that we're, we're giving people the capability to write these kind of checks. Like basically, this is these are really hard to do you know, like you wouldn't log into every device and and do this, right? You would never finish um, <laughs> if you wanted to check these properties. Right. And so, like, you could try imagining, well, okay, well, suppose, you know, you had to write a script to do that, right? I mean, how hard can it be? It's like it's MTU settings. It's not a mathematical, you don't need a mathematical model for that. You can just write a script for that, right? Write an and, Ansible script and log into 1,500 devices now and yeah. query. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Exactly. Like, no problem, right? right? Like, like how hard is that? I mean, you it only have... It's quite like, hard. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds easy, but it's actually, you know, when you've got, let's say, out of a 1,500 devices, you've got 35 to 40 different models. You might have 20 different operating systems, and you, yeah. some of them will be firewalls that may not even have MTU commands. Right. I mean, you know, some of them might have APIs, but most of them won't. And so, yes. you know, you got to script this in SSH interaction and, uh, you know, you might be able to pull some some libraries off for some certain devices, but, you know, not for others. And, uh, you know, well, you got some, you can always write regular expressions. So you're, you're going to, you got different data formats. So you might need to write you know, a few hundred or a thousand regular expressions or, you know, text FSM yes. parsers and so on, you know, and so on and so on. And, and like, 
basically but, but forward networks has already got all that data right you've already yes. pulled all of that in the polling we talked before about the data model so presumably network query engine just queries that i so what you built me is from what i can see is a language where i can query your your data model and say tell me the mtu of all the devices because you know it already effectively yeah that's right so basically you know We've already done that hard work of getting all this data that people need for these checks. You know, that's part of the core aspect of the system that we have to collect MTU and other data for to build this behavioral model. So for us, you know, we've already been doing this for a while, and it's it's a matter of exposing that and giving the user a way to to actually you know work with that data. So as an example, like one example I often give in this in this context is about a service provider that we worked with that. Um, they had a particular network design where they have this like upstream, a downstream and an upstream network that are both part of the same service provider, but, you know, operated by different parts of the organization. So they're friendly, but distinct. And they have a, these BGP peerings um, between upstream and downstream networks where the downstream network is like advertising routes and, and expecting the upstream to distribute them. And what they found is that sometimes that doesn't work. <laughs> and it's, you know, sometimes there might be some some policy, some BGP filtering policy on the upstream mm. that, you know, device that nobody, you know, people had forgotten, long forgotten about and that suddenly got triggered. And so this would cause like a major outage. Um, and it was painful because they had these backup. This was like a failover scenario. So they wouldn't always find out immediately about the problem until a failover happened. So this was very painful. And they they wanted to just check that every time the downstream router announces advertises a, a BGP route up to the upstream, it actually gets installed in the right way. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was, a, you know, it's a very specific check for this network. They want to find out as soon as it happens, hopefully before it causes an outage, you know, it's, it's the root cause of, you know, these real expensive problems. And so that brought us to this realization that we really need to open up this platform and not just enable, not just provide predefined checks, but allow our customers to um, use that data and define their own state and config-based checks. And you know, that, that just enables two things. One, people can write their own checks, but also it'll, it removes us from being a bot bottleneck in this process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one, one of the things that I joked to myself when I saw this announcement was give an engineer a CLI and they'll come right back to it. But I, what I actually meant was the ability to sit there and, and hand carve a query on the forward database to tell me exactly what I want. And that really is different for me. That's a real step forward. Instead of everything being pre-canned by forward, I can start doing my own customization and my own programming to get what I want. That's right. So, so that's the network query engine. And uh, I understand that forward also recently released a new feature called in-app NetQE checks. Uh, what is that and how does it relate to network query engine? Before I get to that, I, I guess I should probably explain a little bit about the database. Um, so the database, we say it's structured and normalized. So structured means that basically you don't have to do any more parsing. So like if we expose the routes, those routes will be, we, we don't just like take the output of, of a route, you know, route table and dump it into a text field. We parse out every little aspect of it. So like, you know, the, the, the prefix and then the next hop and then the weight is a, is a number. It's not just a string. So you're working, basically the point is you don't have to worry about, forget everything you know about, you know, regular, regular expressions and like text FSM and all that stuff. You, you won't need that because it's structured. The other part is normalization. Basically, what we've tried to do wherever possible is come up with a common data model that works across all devices. Mm -hmm. um, so like in the, in the case of that 
service provider use case I was just talking about, you know, using this database, they're able to write a single query that checks this route announcement, this route consistency property that they have, regardless of whether it's running on, you know, Junos or Cisco or, or what have you, um, because the routing information yeah. is all mm-hmm. kind of normalized. And um, if that's based on, you know, we borrowed, we, we are building on top of work from the open config group. Okay. They have, you know, they have done a lot of hard work on, they've thought a lot about, you know, what are good common models that operators want to work with, actually, and, and that, right. you know, abstract away the specifics of each device. And so wherever possible, we borrow from that and build on top of that. So your data model is essentially using kind of a known reference point as opposed to you guys just coming up with your own. Yeah, that's right. I, I like the NQE thing because it means I don't have to worry, like the NQE in-app thing where I can just create the query and then let it run. I don't have to suddenly create all of the infrastructure around to let that happen. I, I like the simplicity of this. But I think yeah. we have to start wrapping up the show for today. So uh, perhaps you can tell the listeners where they can get more information. Uh, yeah, so they can go to the, the show notes and also to um, go to Forward Networks and request a demo. Um, and also, we've got a GitHub repository that has example checks of this in-app NQE checks that allow you to write your queries right into in the application without having to drop into general purpose programming. Fantastic. So you can just go to forwardnetworks.com slash request a demo, and you can actually schedule a live demo with someone from Forward Networks. Uh, and if you're interested in GitHub, it's github.com slash forwardnetworks. We'll have those links and many more from Forward in the show notes that will accompany this podcast uh, Andy, thank you for joining us, and, and thanks to Forward Networks for being a sponsor. Sponsors make it possible for the Packet Pushers to do what we do. Speaking of which, you can find this and many more fine, free, technical podcasts along with our community blog at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>